Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with sex therapist, Dr. Lori Mintz. Lori is a professor at the University of Florida, where she teaches courses on the psychology of human sexuality. She also runs a private practice where she provides counseling to individuals and couples, and she is a prolific researcher and author, having published more than 50 academic journal articles and two books, with her latest being Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters, and How to Get It. Today, we're going to be talking about the orgasm gap and how science can help us to close it. We will also talk about common sexual problems and how to deal with them. And we will explore some of the biggest myths and misconceptions that are out there about sex. So this episode will not only help you to improve your sexual cliteracy, but it will also give you some of the tools you need to lead healthier and hotter sex lives. I can't wait to dive into this conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Lori, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, I'm very excited to have you here. And although we've yet to meet in person, our paths have crossed many times in the past, and I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, in part because you're one of the few people out there who I think really does an excellent job of translating sex science for the public in a way that they can really use. So as someone who has made their career out of science communication, I really appreciate the work that you do. Well, thank you. And the admiration is mutual. I'm a huge fan of your work. <laughs> well, thank you. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your own professional journey and specifically how you got into the world of sex therapy in the first place? And what was it that made you want to make that leap from academia and clinical practice to devoting a lot of your time communicating about science with the public? Well, thanks for asking. I've kind of had a I think a difficult career path, but now I'm super happy. And not difficult in a sense that well, I'll I'll just tell you. <laughs> so, I went to grad school to become a counseling psychologist, which for people who don't know, it's very similar to clinical psychology, but there's much more of a focus on health and well-being and multiculturalism and such. And sex was not even on my radar. And in fact, so I, I got my PhD and then I went the traditional academic route, teaching first at the University of Southern California, later at the University of Missouri, before moving to the University of Florida. And to be honest, I always loved teaching, love, love, loved educating people. And I taught the psychology of women and I went through the traditional tenure route, which for people who don't know, it's a lot of publishing of science. And I'll be very honest, I've published a lot of science, but I always felt something was really missing for me. And it wasn't until I made full professor that I could take a step back and say, what is missing for me? And it's exactly what you talked about is the translational piece. I mean, I had a lot of people reading articles in journals that, but not any impact. It didn't feel like really on the public and spreading the knowledge. And it was at that same time that I thought, wow, you know, I've spent like 20 years working on all this research and trying to get published and tenure and full professor. What do I really want to do with my life? 
and realized I wanted to write a popular press book. And at the time, I wasn't really doing any research on sexuality. To be honest with you, I was doing a lot of research on eating disorders. But in my practice, I was seeing a lot of clients for sexual disorders, probably because I asked. They didn't really come to me for that at the time, but I would always ask my clients. And the answer was typically, well, you know, if uh, you hadn't asked, I wouldn't have told you. But now that you've asked. So I thought, what do I want to write a book on? I want to write a book on low sexual desire because at the time, most of my clients were struggling with that. And it didn't seem like there was a, you know, good resource out there that I felt good about anyway. I mean, there were some good ones, but not something I felt was comprehensive. So I wrote my first book, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. And then speaking of science again, my science, my scientific uh, hat popped back on and I really had sort of a panic. And I was like, what if I wrote a book that's not helpful? What if I put something out in the world that isn't going to help people? And so I started digging into the world of doing randomized clinical trials on books or bibliotherapy and did several studies on my book and found that indeed women who read it increased their desire and other aspects of sexual functioning and you know did wrote my second book which is another story but did the same thing there and basically through writing those books and a blog just really fell in love with translating sexual science for the lay public I love that you're such a scientist that you conducted your own randomized clinical trial with your book. I mean, that, <laughs> that's something that I should do with mine because I have so many people who have, you know, reached out to me to say they've read this book and then they started having some of these conversations about sexual fantasies with their partners and how it opened the door to communication for the very first time. And so I think I would, I would love to see some data about, you know, specifically what are the impacts that it's having on people. So I think it's really cool that you did that. And I think that you and I both share a fairly similar career path in the sense that I went the very traditional academic route as well, but felt something unfulfilling about it. It's not to say that I didn't like or enjoy the research and teaching I did. It was just the longer I spent in academia, the less time I was spending doing the things that I really enjoyed and feeling like I was making an impact because I was sitting on all of these university committees that were about faculty parking issues and other things like that, that just didn't feel like I was being utilized to my full potential. And so I'm similar to you in that I get a lot out of being able to take that science and research and to educate the public more broadly in ways that people can use because there's just such an immense need for it. Absolutely. Yeah, we do have that similarity. And I think we landed in pretty similar places in terms of educating the public from what we know as scientists. And I think a randomized clinical trial on your book would be fantastic. <laughs> well, I just might do it the next time I get a little break in my, my research schedule. I'd like to talk a little bit about your most recent book, which was about sexual clitoracy, which I love that term, by the way. And every time that I mention your book, Becoming Clitorate to Someone, they just, they think it's the best title ever. So, <laughs> you know, good for you in terms of coming up with a catchy title there. But your book is, is about a lot of things, but a, a lot about female sexual pleasure and particularly about this 
concept, this idea of the orgasm gap, which you've written and spoken extensively about. So can you tell my listeners a little bit about what the orgasm gap is, why it exists, and what what's the evidence for it? Absolutely. So the orgasm gap is based in evidence. It's based in science. So I'll answer that right off the top, that it's the consistent finding in research, multiple research studies, that when cisgender men, so people born with penises who identify as men, have sexual encounters with cisgender women, people born with vaginas who identify as women, the men are having substantially more orgasms than the women are. And while that's true in all kinds of sex, it's especially true in casual or hookup sex, but still the gap, it never closes. It's biggest in hookup sex. It gets smaller in friends with benefits, but it never closes altogether. Even in relationship sex, the men are having way more orgasms than the women are. Mm -hmm. And we don't see that same gap when we look at research on, say, gay men and lesbians, where we see that lesbians are having very high rates of, of orgasm. And I think this is also true for bisexual women as well. We see that gap specifically among cisgender heterosexual individuals. So it's definitely specific to sexual orientation yes. and, and gender identity. Absolutely. And there's not enough research around the gender identity issue, but you're, you know, as you so aptly said, we, when women get it on with women, they don't have problems orgasming. Also, there's another gap when women are pleasuring themselves, they don't have any problem orgasming. It's only when, uh, penis enters the picture or the sexual scene, um, that the problem exists. And in fact, that you mentioned bisexual women, there was one study that I think really is so fascinating. It was a broad study, but there was a small number of bisexual women in it who had had casual sex, hookup sex with both women and men. So these are the same women. They hook up with women, they hook up with men, and they were asked how often they orgasmed during those encounters. And even the same women there was a huge difference. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was something like they orgasmed like 85% of the time when they were hooking up with other women and like 7% of the time when <laughs> hooking up with men. So that really tells us that the orgasm gap isn't about women's orgasms being difficult or elusive. It's about the institution of heterosexual sex in our culture that is driving the orgasm gap. Now, you mentioned that the orgasm gap is bigger in casual sex, and I'm somebody who has done a fair amount of research on the topic of casual sex and friends with benefits, but I do have one methodological question about some of the research on the orgasm gap in these hookups, which is that, you know, when it comes to hookups, different people define the term hookup in different ways. And mm -hmm. for some people, a hookup is just kissing or making out. Uh, for others, it might involve oral sex or intercourse or other activities. And it's also possible that men and women might have different definitions of what constitutes a hookup. And one of the things that I've seen in a lot of the research on hookups is that researchers don't take the time to actually define the term hookup when they're surveying people about their experiences. And so if we're asking people whether they orgasmed the last time they had a hookup, there's sort of this problematic assumption built in that they necessarily engaged in activities that could have potentially led to orgasm. And 
you know, I ask this not because I'm questioning the existence of the orgasm gap in hookups at all. You know, it's definitely there. I just wonder whether some of the research on orgasms and hookups might be overstating the size of the orgasm gap because they're not taking that time to sort of operationally define hookups and and to look at the specific activities and behaviors that took place. So what are your thoughts on that and how we should best go about studying the orgasm gap in the context of hookups to you know make sure we're getting the best data? Well, I think that is um, a brilliant observation and question. And in fact, I have the same concern with the literature that you do. So I will tell you that I do have data on that, actually, mm. and it's in my book. And while we can't say, I cannot say this is a, you know, sound study because, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, populations, you know, random and, you know, representative. But I have data coming from my class where I teach about 150 to 200 students a year and in that class, I use anonymous polling technology, and I have a lot of this data, including this piece I'm about to tell you about in my book, Becoming Cliterate. And so I, what I often do with the students is I replicate good data and see if they fit, but I also create polls to do just what you're talking about, to, to kind of get it some information in ways that people haven't or with flaws in the literature so over the last 10 years, so there's, we're talking, a, you know, a couple thousand people, I have asked the students, you know, how often do you orgasm during first time hookup sex? And I define what I mean by hookup sex. And I specifically say that includes activities in which orgasm would be possible such as genital contact, et cetera. And I mean, again, it's not, uh, you know, published in a scientific journal, but what's striking is I get the same results year mm -hmm. after year after year after year. And the average is about 55% of men versus 4% of women say they orgasm during first-time hookup sex. With That includes activities in which orgasm could be possible. Well, I love that you have a data-driven answer for it, and that <laughs> answers my question. So, <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't seem to matter so much how you define hookup. You're going to find the orgasm gap any, any way you look at it. But I love that you've actually asked the question in that more specific way. So we know that the orgasm gap exists. It's sizable. And it has a lot of implications for women's sexual pleasure and enjoyment. So how do we go about closing this gap? And how can everyone benefit from this? Well, that is a great question. So, I mean, I think to close the gap, we first have to take a step back and say, what is causing the gap? And it isn't that we know now, right, that it's not because women are difficult to bring to orgasm. We can do it ourselves. Other women can do it. The reason, I believe, and there's lots and lots of reasons, but I'm talking here about the number one cultural reason. It's our over-focus on penetrative sex and our over-focus on orgasm during intercourse. And we have this, you know, sexual script, if you will, that goes like this. Foreplay, just to get her ready for intercourse. Sex, 
which, you know, I hate when people use the term sex and intercourse one and the same, but I'm using it here to drive home a point, you know, that we consider that the main and most important act. So sex, quote, uh, male ejaculation, a lot of times female fake orgasm, quote, sex over. And nowhere in there is the clitoris or clitoral stimulation valued as equally to penetration. It's just considered a like necessary lead up rather than the main event. And I think thus to close the orgasm gap, we have to do something to change our cultural view of sexual encounters where we consider clitoral stimulation, which is women's most reliable route to orgasm, as equally sex, equally valued as penetration, men's most reliable route to orgasm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I get that we need to change the, the culture surrounding sex, which is important, but it's a really tall order uh, in terms of, you know, how we do that. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of your practical suggestions for women in the bedroom who, you know, steps that they can take to help close the orgasm gap for themselves? I mean, certainly we're all going to work on the the broader sociocultural piece, but what are the things that, that people can do right now in bed to, perhaps have better communication with their partners or to get more of what they want out of sex to ensure that their pleasure is being equally prioritized with their partners? Actually, great question. And in fact, becoming clitorate is a combination of cultural analysis and call for cultural change and prescriptive self-help, giving actual steps for just what you talk about. And side note, a randomized clinical trial on that book <laughs> showed it worked. So, <laughs> so the steps that I talk about that do work, and they're not easy because you have the whole weight of the culture against you. But first, it starts in the sex organ between your ears in two ways. One is really feeling entitled to pleasure, really valuing your pleasure as equal to your partner's. And most of us don't, even people who identify as feminists, if you do this little thought experiment and you ask someone, well, imagine an encounter of woman where you're, you don't orgasm, how do you feel? Now imagine the same thing when your partner doesn't. How do you feel? They usually feel worse when their partner doesn't. So it's really working with your own mind in that way to feel entitled to orgasm. And then you also have to learn mindfulness to turn off that thinking brain when you are having sex and to stop self-monitoring. As I'm fond of saying, you cannot have an orgasm when you're holding your stomach in and wondering how you look. Um, mm -hmm. Believe me, I tried it in college. It didn't work. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's the mind. And then there's taking matters into your own hands, masturbation. Every vulva likes something a little different. So masturbate, masturbate, masturbate. Find out what your vulva likes and then communicate that with a partner. And, you know, it's, it's underutilized advice, but get the same type of stimulation alone that you do with a partner. So many women, you know, touch themselves externally during masturbation, 99%, in fact, and then they get with a partner and they sort of forget that and think they should come another way. And so, you know, feeling that, you know, getting that stimulation, communicating that you want that stimulation, feeling entitled 
to that stimulation, which then would lead you to change that cultural script into maybe more turn-taking scripts. You come, then I come. Or, you know, if you want to come during the same act and it is intercourse, take your vibrator and use it on yourself or your hand. There's, it's just as much sex if you are touching yourself during intercourse or using a vibrator. So those are some of the steps that uh, women can take and, you know, do take. And they work to become more orgasmic during partner sex and close the orgasm gap. Yeah, and I think that's all fantastic advice. And just a couple of other things I'd add to it. You know, I'm somebody who studies sexual fantasies, and there's research showing that women who communicate about and share their fantasies with their partners and act on their fantasies have more orgasms than women who don't. And so, you know, another piece of closing the orgasm gap could be getting more in touch with your fantasies and desires and making sure that you're getting more of what you want out of sex. And something else that I've increasingly seen a lot of research on is that sometimes just simply changing up your sexual position is another way you can go to get a different type of stimulation that might increase the odds of orgasm. So there was a study that actually just came out, uh, I believe it was published in the journal Sexual Medicine. and they surveyed, I think it was around 11,000 people in the Czech Republic, heterosexual adults, about 13 different sexual positions that they've used, how frequently they use them, and how consistently they orgasm in each of those positions. And what they found was that in the position where the female partner is on top, the, the so-called cowgirl position, they find that women report having more consistent experiences with orgasm in that particular position. There was one other position they found that was related to more consistency of orgasm, which was the the sort of seated face-to-face position where the, the woman is, is kind of sitting on top of her partner. And those are two positions that sort of naturally provide more clitoral stimulation because the clitoris is uh, coming into more consistent contact and getting more friction from her partner's body. So sometimes just kind of switching up the position uh, can, can also be another way to help with this. And just one other thing I'll add from that study, they found that the doggy style position or rear entry position was actually associated with less consistent orgasms in part because there there isn't that same clitoral contact and stimulation that's happening. So is, is that something you've seen in your work as well, that sexual position is something that seems to be a, a piece of this? Yes and no. And first of all, the fantasy piece, I just love that. I'm going to I'm going to incorporate that in my suggestions and refer people to your book. So thanks for that. In my answer to the position one is yes and no. So I have seen that that any intercourse position that will get the clitoris stimulated and and those are the positions that often do are going to result in more orgasms. Absolutely. That's the yes. The no is that I have talked to many women who actually are very ashamed of this, but it is nothing to be ashamed of. But they say that no matter what, even if they're stimulating their own clitoris during intercourse, they cannot orgasm during intercourse that they need to focus fully and completely on the clitoral sensations and need more of a turn-taking model, even if they're stimulating their clitoris during intercourse. So I think that for those who can 
reliably orgasm with a combination of penetration and clitoral stimulation, the position makes a big difference. For those who can't, then I I just want to make sure no one feels less than because however you orgasm in whatever way is completely and totally fine. And I also would say there are some great couple vibrators out there. If you also want to try getting some clitoral stimulation during intercourse, there's some cock rings that have clitoral attachments so that while the partner is thrusting the vibrator, he's like wearing it and it's um, stimulating her clitoris at the same time. That's a really fun way too. And that's lots more great advice. And, you know, I appreciate you sharing that. And that I think the key here again is really know your own body and try different things and see what works for you. And, you know, part of why some people might have more difficulty with orgasm than others is maybe they just haven't explored or experimented enough. And maybe you won't know what you like and what works for you until you try it. So keep mixing it up and trying new and different things till you, you figure out what it is that, that that's best for you and your body. 100%. Just try different things. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Then you try something else. Yep. So you have worked as a sex therapist for many years, and I'm sure you've seen a lot in that time. So can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned through your practice? And specifically, you know, what are the main factors that drive people to sex therapy in the first place? And how much of what you're seeing reflects problems that could have been solved earlier on if people had just gotten better quality sex education. So in other words, how much of your practice is about kind of giving people the sex ed that they never got before? A lot of my practice, a lot. And it it is so sad to me. I mean, I think there's two things that happen. So many of the clients I see, their problems are due to not having knowledge, to having that could have been given in sex ed, and not even not having knowledge, having instead of accurate knowledge, false information, myths, and at the same time having a lot of shame and silence and not knowing how to talk about things. And so many of the people I see, if they had sought help earlier or not been so ashamed or been able to talk about things, they might not have never ever needed to see me in the first place. Mm-hmm. That they, you know, you're probably well aware of this. There's something um, that I love called the PLICIT model, which stands for Permission, Limited Information, Specific Suggestion, and Intensive Therapy. And it, it was by Jack Annan in 1974, still really good today. And he talked about how 80 to 90% of sexual problems could actually just be solved with information, sex positive, accurate information and suggestions and without intensive therapy. But by the time people let these problems fester and fester and fester, that's no longer true. And the, the problems have doubled upon themselves and mushroomed. So I would say... I would say almost all of the clients I see have been negatively affected by lack of sex ed. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I hear similar stories from a lot of other sex therapists that I talk to. And it's part of the reason why I do the work that I do is to try and help people get the sex ed that they never got in school, the sex ed that I never got in school, with the hope that maybe that can help them to solve some of the problems that they're experiencing without the need to, you know, go in for, you know, some type of therapy. Now, related to that, a question I often get asked by people is, when is it time to see a sex therapist? What is your advice on that subject? You know, when a problem becomes serious enough to merit visiting a therapist, and are there things that you recommend that people consider trying or doing on their own before consulting a therapist? What's the ideal sort of process there? That is such a good question. You know, I think I'm a, obviously as a therapist, I'm a huge believer in therapy. So I certainly think if you have the time and the resources, you know, any time is a great time to see a sex therapist as soon as a problem starts. So it doesn't fester on the one hand. On the other hand, because of this plicit model that I just talked to you about, that is the reason that self-help books work right? That's the reason that bibliotherapy, if you will, is a mainstay of sex therapy because you can get that information from a book if you, you know, get a good book and you get it soon when the problem starts. So certainly I could suggest to someone as soon as a problem starts, get a good book on the topic and use that, use the suggestions, make sure it's actually written by a sex therapist or someone with credentials. And if those things don't work, seek therapy, but there's no shame in jumpstarting the process and reading the book and seeing the therapist at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's great advice to do your research on the books that you're thinking about reading first, because not all self-help books are created equal. And there are a lot of them that give, frankly, bad advice. And, you know, you need to make sure that the book is written by somebody who has the appropriate credentials and clinical experience or research experience, you know, ideally something that is science-based and evidence-based as opposed to somebody who's just spouting a lot of their own personal opinions. Right. And any book that tells you some wild claim, like if you read this book, you will never not have a reliable erection again. Or if you read this book, you'll have multiple orgasms every time you have a sexual encounter. Steer away from that because that's a myth in and of itself. All sexual encounters are not fireworks. Yeah, fantastic advice. And, you know, be wary of people who make the, the very bold, very sensationalized claims and people who, you know, use the terms always and never uh, a lot when they're describing how their advice works. Because, you know, the truth is that everybody's different. And if you're getting advice from a, a sex therapist or a sex researcher, there's going to be a lot of nuance in it. And a lot of, you know, this works for some people, but it doesn't work for everyone. And so when it comes to sex and pleasure, these are extraordinarily complex things and, and different things work for different people. So I think your advice is totally spot on about, you know, being wary of the, the super bold claims. Yes, yes. It is very nuanced. It is yep. sex is very nuanced, even though there's things that we know help almost everyone 
you know, fantasy, mindfulness, masturbation, you know, some of the mainstays. But beyond that, you know, everybody's different. Every body is different. Every couple is different. Yep, absolutely. So since we're talking about lack of sex ed and how that's one of the things that often drives people to sex therapy, let's talk about some common sexual myths and and misconceptions because people get a lot of things wrong when it comes to sex. So let's do a little crash course in sex ed for our listeners. So let me ask you a couple of true or false questions and you can Oh boy, I hope I get them right. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, it's not a test for you, but uh, you know I will I will tell you some common things that I've heard from people and you can tell me what your take on it is. So Absolutely. So first, sex is an emotional experience for women but a physical experience for men. Mm, false. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you say that? Because that is so gender stereotyped, first of all. And while you 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 can find women who say, oh, sex is all about the emotion and men who say it's all about the physicality, you're more likely to find people saying, and, and sex works better when it is not so gender stereotyped and where it is an erotic and physical and emotional experience for both parties. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't have to be emotional at all. I mean, it can just be physical as well. So all of that is just a bunch of hogwash, actually. <laughs> and I, I would agree with you on that. And that's, you know, something I also see in my fantasy research is that, you know, most people, regardless of their gender, their sexual orientation, they rarely or never have fantasies about totally emotionless sex. Like there's usually some emotional need that's being met. And even when you're talking about something like a threesome, which is uh, one of men's most common sexual fantasies, if you look at the way that they describe those scenarios playing out, they usually want to be the center of attention and they want to feel overwhelmingly desired and they want to feel sexually confident and competent. And so, you know, we have a tendency to look at men's fantasies and think about it just as like this physical act that's taking place. But there's this very important emotional subtext that I think all too often gets ignored. And so I think sex is more often than not, a very emotional experience for for people regardless of their their gender identity and and sexual orientation. Completely agree. So true or false, larger penises bring heterosexual women more pleasure and more orgasms during sex. (laughs) Totally (laughs) false. Totally false. In fact, I think it was Paul Joannidis in the Guide to Getting It On said one of the great sexual ironies is that Often men worry, are they big enough? And women worry, oh no, is he too big? Is it going to hurt? Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is that there was also, you probably know about this research, um, there's a lot of research showing that and it also depends on how you ask the question. But if you ask women an open-ended question, what's most important to you during sex? So you don't even mention penis size. They don't mention penis size either. And But if you ask women questions about penis size and how important it is, very few women say it's essential to their pleasure. And usually it's those women who, those few women who orgasm from penetration alone. And I'm a big advocate of telling people, let's please cut the cock jokes, the, cock, the, the penis size jokes, because 
what we're doing is we're reinforcing the myth that actually becoming clitorate was written to get rid of, and that is that penises are essential to our pleasure. And I think if we want to make some jokes, we should start joking about the flexibility of men's hands and tongues instead. <laughs> and, you know, I think the the research I've read backs up what you're saying that, you know, size just people tend to think it's much more important. They give it this outsized importance when it comes to sex. And really, it doesn't matter nearly as much as you think that it does. And good sex is about so much more than genital size or appearance. And, Absolutely. Yeah. So true or false, this is another question I often get asked. Women reach a sexual peak in their 30s, whereas men reach their peak much earlier. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> um, you know, well, first of all, you probably know this, but correct me if I'm wrong. There's great variability among people. Everybody doesn't reach a certain peak at a certain time. But we do know that as women get older, they get more sexually satisfied. And I don't think that has to do with aging. I think it has to do with getting comfortable with what you need, getting comfortable saying it, and getting comfortable with your own body. And so what I tell my younger clients and students is, this is what the research shows, but you know what? You don't have to wait. You can do that now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think there's definitely this tendency for people to think that there is a, a sexual peak for women that happens later, but I think it in part is due to the fact that many women don't start masturbating until later in life and figuring out what they what really works for their body and you know the point where they really feel empowered to tell their partner what it is that they want you know i think that is part of the reason why we tend to think that there's this sexual peak for women that happens later but ultimately it's more about women getting more comfortable and, and confident in their bodies than anything and uh, i think you're absolutely right that we need to encourage people to to do that earlier in life because you know basically we're <laughs> there's this big period of life where there's a lot of pleasure we're missing out on that we could have had if we could have just developed that confidence a lot earlier Right. And I think that I think we're both saying the same thing in different ways. In a way, by calling it a sexual peak, it, it implies that it's this inevitable, bio, inevitable biological yep. genital focused event. And it's not. It's it's about confidence. It's about empowerment. It's about communication. It's about knowing your own body. And those things generally increase with age, but it's not about it's not about some great biological thing that happens at a certain age. Yeah, these so-called peaks are much more about psychological and sociocultural factors than they are about some biological drive that, you know, leads to this temporary peak and then it, you know, declines after that. So, you know, again, it just kind of goes back to we, we have this very fundamental misunderstanding of sex. And I think we all too often want to attribute a biological cause to everything. And I think that that's often the case too in the world of sex therapy, where we have this tendency to assume that sexual problems are caused by biological factors and you just need to take a pill to fix your sexual problems. But the reality is that most sexual problems can be fixed through having high quality, appropriate sex education, giving yourself that permission, and also having better communication with your partners. Absolutely. And in fact, I did a study um, since, you know, we're talking a lot of science. I called it pills versus skills. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I had women who said they were really struggling with low sexual desire, half read my book and half took a pill that they to- were told was a very effective drug. It had been found very effective in clinical trials, but it wasn't on the market yet. They were very lucky to get this pill, da 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 And half read my book and half took the pill. And while they were reading the book, right after and taking the pill, they both had incredibly great changes. In fact, I had so many participants write me saying, this pill is working so good. I'm terrified this study's going to end. How will I get this pill? And then, of course, you know, we told them the truth and, you know, the power of the mind. But then we did a follow-up six weeks later, and those who had taken the, quote, pill, they went back to baseline. Those who had gotten the skills it not only still were doing better, but their changes were getting even better over time. I love that so much. I mean, first of all, I love that you have data and you have a study for everything. Um, <laughs> but it's actually like a perfect lead into my next question, which was literally, do aphrodisiacs actually work? You know, the, the oysters, chocolate, all these things. Can consuming an aphrodisiac actually boost sexual arousal or not? Like a placebo, if you believe it can, it can. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it, it is amazing, the the power of the mind and how, you know, it's more about how a pill makes you feel or how a particular food makes you feel when you're eating it. And if you expect that it's going to increase your arousal and make sex better and give you a better orgasm, then it probably will, right? They're all self-fulfilling prophecies and and expectancy effects. So, you know, again, the, the power of the mind is just, it's so important when it comes to sex. It is. And it's nothing to be ashamed of either. I told the women in my study, because I really gave this a lot of thought, like, boy, once they learned, you know, would they be embarrassed that, you know, But the placebo effect isn't a nothing effect. There's very good research that in the biological realm, even that if people are given a placebo that they're told is potent, they will evidence biological changes, including things like heart, you know, heart disease, lung disease, like the mind has incredible power. Yep. Well, I've heard similar stories from a lot of doctors who have had young patients, young male patients come in complaining of erectile dysfunction in their late teens or 20s, and there is nothing biologically wrong with them. But in many of these cases, the doctors give them a a sugar pill, right? Uh, Placebo. And, uh, you know, simply the act of them taking that pill, that biologically inert substance that has no effect on their body, these men regain their sexual confidence and, and sexual performance. And so, uh, you know, again, just further evidence of, of the power of the mind and, and how that plays such a big role in, in a lot of the sexual problems that we experience and also in terms of how we learn to, to cope with them and deal with them effectively. Absolutely. So any other sex myths you want to bust today? For example, any common myths you hear from students uh, taking your human sexuality course that seem to keep coming up over and over? Um, Well, I think that we covered most of them, except for two, well, three. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, one, two, three. Um, Related to the penis size is the length that intercourse should last. And the longer you last, the more likely your female partner is going to orgasm. And while there is some 
slight data behind that. It's it's related to the same myth that penises are essential to pleasure, and we need to let go of that. The second myth is the myth of the, the ideal myth of simultaneous orgasm. And again, that's related to the same myth about intercourse-based orgasms. And it's 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 really, I always tell people, it's kind of a ridiculous myth because to be orgasmic, you have to be pretty self-focused. That's another irony. Like you cannot be focused on your partner to orgasm. You have to be fully into your body. So you can't exactly orgasm effectively by trying to go, okay, let's see, is he going to now? Okay, three, two, one, go. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Um, and then the myth of spontaneous sex is a big one. And, you know, sometimes uh, sex is, you know, unplanned. Um, but most of the time what we consider st spontaneous sex is actually well-orchestrated sex, you know. You go out, you get dressed, you put on, you know, your nicest panties and you take a shower and, you know, perfume and all that. You see that cute guy wherever or, or girl or whatever at the party, you flirt, ha ha, you touch each other and oh, oh my, the evening ended in sex. It was not spontaneous. It was well orchestrated. Yeah. And once we know that it really opens the door for sexual encounters to be planned and anticipated, which is really important as um, couples if they're in a committed relationship with children and that kind of thing, because otherwise it just won't happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's one of the biggest misconceptions that's out there is that if you plan sex, that that necessarily takes the fun out of it and it's going to be less exciting. And we really need to flip the script on that because if sex is planned, if it's something that's on the schedule, that gives you time to build up anticipation for it. And you can have a flirting process that extends over a period of hours or days or sometimes even longer. And, and that's okay. And having that anticipation, excitement, and buildup can actually make the sex even better in the end. So let's stop, you know, harping on planned sex and assuming that, you know, the best sex is spontaneous because that's really not necessarily the case. Absolutely. And I like to call planned sex trysts because that is what it is, a planned meeting between lovers and while that has the, you know, idea of an affair, you know, it's not, it's not, that's not how it's defined. It's planned meeting and it sounds a lot better than planned sex. So I say, go have a tryst. Yeah. We just need to rebrand it. So <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Just get a couple of psychologists together and we'll rebrand all of these <laughs> ideas. Um, I also like that you brought up the, the point about, you know, just having longer sex won't necessarily make it better or increase the odds of orgasm. Related to that, having more sex isn't necessarily going to make you happier either, right? Because if people are only having mediocre sex to begin with, doing it for longer or doing it more often isn't going to make your sex life any better. And in fact, there's research finding that 
when they do these randomized controlled trials where they assign some people to double the amount, some couples to double the amount of sex they're having and others to just kind of stick with their sexual routine, they find that people who try and double the amount of sex they're having actually are less happy in the end and they want less sex. <laughs> because, Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's because they're kind of going through the motions and they're having sex for the sake of doing it rather than because they really want it. And so, you know, it all comes down to focusing on the the quality of the sex you're having rather than getting hung up on the quantity, how long you're doing it, how many times a week or month or year you're doing it. Uh, we really need to focus more on that that quality piece. Absolutely. And tell me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a study that said that found that like about once a week, there's no more benefits past once a week. And I'm not saying everyone should have sex once a week. If you want it every day, fine. If you want it once a month, fine. Once a year, fine. But I'm pretty sure there was a study that said like the benefits, the physical, emotional, relational benefits can be derived by once a week. Yes. I'm familiar with the study you're talking about. And it I think one of the big things that we're looking at was the correlation between sexual frequency and happiness. And people were happier with the more sex they were having up until once per week, but having more sex beyond that didn't translate to any further increase in, in happiness. So it's, it's sort of a diminishing returns kind yeah. of thing where, you know, quantity of sex matters to a degree, but more is not always better. I love that I could have this vague memory of a study and you know it like <laughs> the details of it. You said something else that made me think of one more myth I'd love to bust. Mm -hmm. and, and that is that you have to be horny to have sex. Mm -hmm. um, and especially for women, there's something called receptive desire, which is that you can be receptive to the idea of sex. Like, I know I'm going to like it when it gets going. I know I'm going to feel closer to my partner and that you can have sex to get horny rather than waiting to be horny to have sex. Mm -hmm. So true. So we are out of time, but thank you so much for this important and fun conversation and all of the great advice uh, that's evidence and research-based. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn a little bit more about your work and where they can get your books? Absolutely. And thanks for having me. It was an honor. My website is www.drlaurimintz.com. And that's spelled L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z. And from there, you can find all my social media handles, which are all the same, Dr. Lori Mintz, and links to buy my books. But you can buy my books wherever books are sold, ebooks, audiobooks, anything like that, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, indie bookstores, but there's links to that on my website. Well, thank you again for your time and for your valuable insights. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com, or you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Amazon, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, as well as Lori's latest book, Becoming Clitorate. I think they make great companion reads together. And hey, maybe you can join us in doing a randomized controlled trial of the effects <laughs> of these books. So thank you again for listening. Until next time.